Hi, welcome to the Artificial Intelligence, Machine Learning and Data Science Weekly Podcast. My name is Kwan Hong, or you can call me KH. In this show, I'll be talking to AI, ML and data science practitioners around the region. In each episode, I will dive into relevant and interesting AI, ML topics, where you get to know more about topics ranging from AI, ML adoption, best practices, and tips and tricks to be a better AI, ML data science practitioner. Hi, welcome to another episode of AI, ML, and Data Talk podcast. In today's episode, I'm happy to have Dixon Neo, who is a developer advocate at Zen ML, as a guest for the show. Hi, Dixon, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Kwanong. Glad to be here. Yep, nice to nice to have you. I think uh, this is the second time we have met over, over the, uh, online uh, for another. Uh, previously, you was actually a guest for my uh, uh, this flow and machine learning user group talk. Right. I think uh, it's good to have uh, you again. Uh, so like uh, uh, for all of my previous show, usually I will ask my guests to do a self-introduction. So maybe you can talk something about your childhood, your education, and then your career path and what leads to what, what the leads to your current job at, at this uh, moment now. All right. So hello, everyone. So my name is Dixon and I'm just... Uh... <laughs> Uh, Malaysian. So right now I am in Kuala Lumpur and I am now and uh, previously I was an academic and right now I am a developer advocate at ZenML. So just a little bit background about myself. I grew up, uh, grew up in Malaysia and throughout my childhood, my um, environment in my childhood is a little bit um, different from a typical environment. So as uh, well, maybe your audience can't see. Uh, I'm of a Chinese descendant in uh, in Malaysia over here, and in Malaysia we are a multiracial country, right? So there's Chinese, there's Indian, there's a Malay, and there's other ethnic as well. So being a Chinese over here, um, usually what happens in the Chinese family is you grow up in a Chinese uh, Chinese um, culture in a Chinese uh, in a Chinese maybe uh, neighborhood. But for me, it's very different. I uh, even though I'm Chinese, but uh, I grew up in a uh, Malay neighborhood. In fact, um, in my childhood, I stayed with um, like a caretaker who is a Malay. And at one point, I even called them mom and dad in Malay. And so my 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 best language back then was actually Malay. And then I didn't really know how to speak Chinese until like uh, I was older. And I went to a Malay school as my edu- education in my uh, primary school. And secondary school, I went to a private school, which is an English school. And in my university, I went to uh, a local private university over here. It's called Uniten, and to pursue electrical and electronics engineering. And following that, uh, completing the bachelor's degree, I became an academic, also in the same university. And at the same time, doing my PhD as well, in the field of uh, artificial intelligence and uh, elect- power electronics in general. And of course, that also involves using AI in the process. Okay, very interesting background. <laughs> okay, uh, so I see that uh, you actually was uh, uh, studying and actually working at the same university for quite some time. How long were you at, at Uni10? Wow, um, I came in as a student in 2007 and uh, it's until this year I decided to take uh, a step outside of the university 2022 so that's what more than 10 years over there yeah. about 15 years <laughs> yeah, definitely yeah. okay so that's I think um, I can relate to that because I was also working in the university for 15, 16 years wow. <laughs> I also left yeah. after working for you know in the, in the academics world for 15 plus years uh, that uh, I took the leap of uh, faith that I joined like I joined the industry and then uh, I, I ever since I know I actually I've been enjoying my work life and then uh, people have been asking me whether I will, I will one day go back to academics maybe one day but <laughs> at the moment now I'm just enjoying my work at the moment now okay so uh, uh about your PhD what what uh, what you actually did for your PhD uh, in terms of research? So uh, the research question was, um, can we, uh, it's about electric vehicle and inside electric vehicle, we have batteries. Like usually the typical kind of battery that is being used right now is lithium ion battery. And one peculiar thing about the lithium ion battery is that 
you cannot know the exact amount of charge left in a lithium ion battery. Like there is no way that you can measure like using a equipment or a meter and say, okay, the amount of charge is like 50% left in the lithium ion battery. To a certain extent, you can do it, but it's not accurate enough. And so what, what I'm trying to do in my PhD work is to devise an algorithm or a method to make this uh, estimation of the charge much more accurate. And in doing that, I, uh, I decided to use uh, many artificial intelligence methods. And one of the methods that I explored was using deep learning. So that was the entire idea over there. I see. So what was the accuracy like? <laughs> Well, I think uh, as an academic, you also can know uh, the accuracy is still widely debatable because, um, you know, accuracy depends on which data set you use. Um, you can use like an easy data set and then you can get a good accuracy, but you can also go for a super challenging data set and your accuracy might not be so good. And to make things worse in this field, there are no standard data set yet. So part of my study was also to create that data set and fingers crossed it becomes a standard, but uh, now I decided that, okay, uh, it's too hard. <laughs> it's too hard to create a good data set actually. And I came across uh, other people who have, who has a better equipment and they produce and contribute that data set to the community. I see. Yeah. So, it, so is it the same that uh, if I mean because everyone now having a smartphone and then we have indicated that how much how much battery that we have in our smartphone is it the same kind of things or is it uh, going to be different? Yeah, it's the same kind of things, but I'm not too sure what algorithm that is running currently running on the phone. But um, yeah, for for a phone and electric vehicle, I think the similarity is that maybe they're using some kind of a lithium ion battery. Yeah, and the algorithm, I'm not too sure what is it on the phone. Okay, interesting. Yeah. Uh, I know I know that uh, you said uh, uh, you actually left your job after 15 years working in the academics. Uh, you actually left this year, isn't it? That you yeah. joined a company. So, yeah. uh, so the company that you are working now is called ZenML. So maybe can you just describe a bit about what is ZenML and what, are, what is your job actually as a developer advocate? Yeah. So ZenML is a startup in the MLOps field right now. So I think as uh, your viewers or audience can tell, MLOps is a relatively new field. It's an exploding, uh, exploding, leap, uh, exploding field right now, um, gaining popularity day by day. And there's one problem uh, right now in MLOps, and that is in the field itself, there is too many things right now going on. There's literally, as we're speaking now, maybe hundreds of tools out there um, in MLOps and each tool, they do separate things. They do very specific things. And uh, as, as, as a user, sometimes when you jump into MLOps, uh, it might be very disorienting to see, wow, there is just so many things right in front of me. Where do I start? Which one do I pick? And I don't have all the time in the world to try all the hundred tools out there. So what if I try tool A and then I'm not happy and I want to switch to tool B to see uh, when does it end, right? And we haven't even talked about vendor lock-in. Some tools, they are locked in by vendors. You use one tool and then you want to switch to, uh, to the other one, then you have to change the entire ecosystem, things like that. So ZenML is here to solve this kind of problem. Um, what ZenML tries to do is uh, it provides a framework where you can unify all of your tools together in one place. For example, um, you might be using TensorFlow uh, for building a model. And then you might also want to use uh, weights and biases, for example, to track your experiments. And you might want to use other tools like uh, DVC, for example, to track, to track your data versioning and so on and so forth. And to deploy that model, you might have some other frameworks like uh, Selden or KServe. And to let all this, framework talk to one another, it's, it takes a little bit of work over there. And it takes, I think, uh, if you're an ML ops, you know that it takes a lot of time to configure all of this so that it talks seamlessly. So ZenML aims to make it easy for everyone to do that. So at ZenML, we provide like various integration to various tools so that uh, one can just jump into um, the uh, just take ZenML and just treat it like a like a like a framework where you can connect any tools. So even if there is no existing 
um, integration to your tool, there is an easy way where you can write that integration yourself and connect that to all other tools that is connected to ZenML. That is, in short, what ZenML is doing. So how about your job as a developer advocate? What do you do? So my job as a developer advocate is um, to make sure ZenML goes to the right people, right? So if you're a developer and you're not sure what to do and you want to you want to kind of explore uh, to use ZenML in your workplace or in your research, so I am here to be the bridge for you to use it. So my goal is to make sure that users get a good experience in using ZenML, you get good support and you need, if you need help. So I'm here to help you out in whatever use case that you have in mind. Okay. Um, so like mentioned just now, MLRO is something that's very happening now that, and, and that because of the, there's a lot of interest in machine learning, even there's a lot of uh, people are actually working on uh, uh, machine learning and then there are a lot of tools that actually needed. That's where this MLRO things actually you know, started to, you know, it's actually exploded. But uh, ML Ops actually, the term actually just started like two years ago in two, uh, right. 2020. Right. So maybe we just take, take a step back. What is actually ML Ops? We know from a software engineering uh, perspective, we know it's something we call DevOps, no development yeah. Uh, yeah. operation. So what yeah. is ML Ops? What's the difference between DevOps and ML Ops? Yeah, so I think that the, it's very hard to pin down the exact uh, definition of MLOps these days because, as you said, this term is new, and everyone is still like uh, exploring, uh, exploring what is this all about. But uh, one thing I understand uh, from MLOps is that it definitely originates from DevOps. So in DevOps, in software engineering, DevOps, uh, there are like standard practices that uh, that. Uh, software companies go through in order to bring a software into the market. For example, they do tests, um, they, they write software in a certain way, and then they do versioning and stuff. And the idea of MLOps is how can you take all the best practices from software engineering, DevOps, and include machine learning inside of that? So uh, the idea sounds kind of simple on paper, but in reality, it is a little bit more uh, tricky to implement. So in, in software engineering, typically the code is um, what we are interested in because it when you change the code, you change the outcome. So code plays an important role. So we version the code, we version the changes in the code in, on GitHub, for example. But it, it, in machine learning, is not just about the code. It's the code and the data and the interaction between the two. That is what makes it a little bit more tricky to to do the same things as in uh, as in DevOps and like software engineering. So that I think is a is a broad idea of what MLOps is all about. And there are right now tools popping up here and there trying to accomplish various things. And yeah, there's no there's also no accept, widely acceptable standards yet right now. And and it's things are all around the place right now and it's 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 an open open space yep definitely i think uh, like what you say that for a DevOps, so probably if you go through a software engineering cycle you have something what we call the code then you build the code you test the code mm -hmm. then you release and deploy the that's no, that's a common uh, framework for the DevOps. whereas emeralds you have something what we call <laughs> model training and then you yeah. have model uh, uh deployment then that's not just the end. <laughs> so normally, yeah. once you deploy a model, then you need to actually make sure monitor the model. Then again, then later we might want to know when you monitor model, if any changes, whatever, you might want to go through the process of retrain the model, and then that's the whole things of MLO will cover. Right. Exactly. Okay. So uh, <laughs> that, that, that that's the reason why uh, because machine learning has been uh, uh, has been around for quite some time, but then. Two years ago, then people are starting to talk about MLO. There must be a reason why we need MLO. Why, why, why we need MLO? Because there's, there's, because when we look at the, there's a statistics that show that eighty percent of the machine learning product that we actually have is actually not been deployed. Yeah, the famous right now famous uh, survey by Gardner eighty plus. I think it could be more or less right now. Yeah, but the first time I came across that statistic, I was in disbelief because. I, I was in academic back then. I just couldn't believe the statistic. I thought like, okay, this must be some kind of a mistake or something. Uh, you know, after all decades of machine learning uh, research, 
after you know um state of the art after one state of the art being published after you know after um all of this uh, superhuman performance by model so like 80% didn't make it to production like you got to be joking right but uh the, that's the reality uh, I, I had a hard time accepting this fact until like i really uh, dive and found out that yeah i mean most model actually exists on paper only <laughs> or what? on a notebook or on a github repo or yeah why 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 do you think there is this uh, this this difficulty or the challenges of deploying a model yeah so i think the the disconnect is um something that i took some time to also study about and i think one thing that i really see from academic perspective is that in academic we are very obsessed with numbers we are very obsessed with metrics we are very obsessed with accuracy with uh with uh, the score that we are trying to optimize and yeah we talk about state of the art 99% accuracy or whatever right on a certain data set but uh in in the industry as i see it right now um the accuracy probably isn't a very crucial factor yeah so there are there are there are more things um that comes into consideration when we take a model from a research paper into production like as you said just now let's say you want to deploy like an image classifier with a 99% accuracy that can classify cats and dogs and you put it in the real world and then you discover that oh okay there is a particular kind of cat that doesn't exist in my dataset and so what does it mean with the 99% accuracy right now so and and this kind of problems this is just one of it and because of these kind of problems um right now we have to have methods and mechanism to to see whether or not uh, to monitor a model whether or not the model is really performing like what it does in your development cycle which is 99% accuracy and in many cases it's not because in the real world things change people change uh, it's not a static world so this is just one problem uh, that we're trying to tackle in mlops yeah, I think uh, this is very common. Whoever has studied uh, machine learning, so they're actually always given a very nice data set. And yes. most of the time, it's, or, or it's already pre-processed or already clean nicely. And then most of the time, you have properly labeled data set. And then yeah. you can actually achieve 90% accuracy. And then you, you will expect that uh, when I come up to work in the future, I will get I always get 90% accuracy. But then that's not the real case. And I always tell the, 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 even the student who or people who are working in industry, even you can get 60 plus percent, that's considered very good already. Yep, exactly. <laughs> okay. Uh so so like you said, uh, uh that there that, that is a problem where you no know, model that you deploy, like you said, uh, when you do in the training, you get 90 plus accuracy. But then when you deploy real world, they're bound to be a, to be some data or uh that the model have never trained before. Definitely, then they will not give a good result when you have a not a data that's not trained before, not seen, not not trained in the in the training environment. So, what do you do? What do you do? How what how do you solve this problem? Well, there are mechanisms that we use right now in MLOps, and it's called um drift detection. So, this is a problem of drift in which there's two kinds of drift. One is data drift. The other one is model drift. So the idea is that when the model doesn't perform, it doesn't get the same kind of inputs in training and in deployment. So one, one element in MLOps is we try to monitor this so that the data distribution in the real world is as close as possible to the data distribution in training. So once there is a discrepancy between that, then you know, okay, this model is probably not going to perform well in the real world because it's running on is is inferencing on a different kind of data. So at that point, you might want to consider re to refresh your model by retraining it, or even before that, you might even need to collect like uh, data from the real world, and you might even want to add that to your existing data, or you might even want to enrich your data set with some kind of I don't know synthetic data that emulates uh, what the real world as close as possible and slowly phase out your model that's not performing well in the real world and it's a it's it's a continuous loop 
And the one thing that I that really changed how I see machine learning is that it's not like a one-way street. Like you go from one end development and you and once you apply arrive at deployment, it stops there. But in machine learning, it's always going back to the first <laughs> to the first uh first square. That is to collect the data and retrain your model and you redeploy it again and you do it for as long as you want that model to be alive. Yeah, I think this is something that uh, a, a lot, a lot, of, a lot of people also will have a misconception that once I deploy a model, then my job is done, right? So I can just you know, <laughs> wash your hands. Yeah, wash your hands. But uh, we know that uh, because while no matter what you do in the training environment, you can never train enough data in the real world because you're bound to have a, the data that uh, that never in, in the training in, in the training uh, environment. Another thing is. The world is very dynamic and the world keeps on changing. So whatever model that you have, over a period of time, the model will not performing, will not, will not be, uh, be performing quite well as you expected. There's a, right. there's a term what we call model decay. Yes. So when exactly. you have model decay, then you need to retrain your model. So, yeah. so, so it's a, always a continuous process. That's where you need this emerald option continuously. Uh, because when you do a model retrain, do you stop the current model or... How do you make sure the current model or the, 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 the product that you are running still 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 able to you know serve the customer or serve the end user, serve its purpose? At the same time, you're able to retrain it back and then deploy and then update the model accordingly. Right. Exactly. Okay. Uh so when you talk about uh, the this the, the difference between uh, training and uh, the uh, testing, do you have any example that uh, you want to give? For example, a lot of people cannot visualize how can the data can be different that I need to, for example, like model drift or data drift. Right. So I, I think one very relevant example is the one I can recall top of my head is a company called Zillow. So this company called Zillow um, is a company that, um, that deals with housing and prices. So what they did before the pandemic was, I think it, they, they took the variable of the housing data um, before pandemic, before 2019. And then all of a sudden, pandemic hits, and all of a sudden there is a shift in the buyer's um, behavior. All of a sudden, everyone become not so keen of buying homes and everything else. So what happened to that model is that it didn't, of course, it didn't predict the pandemic coming, and and then the pandemic hit, and of course the model suffered a great uh, suffered greatly because in the training data there wasn't any 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 information or there's no any any data points. When a pandemic actually happens, so during the pandemic they suffered like a huge amount of losses because they relied a lot on uh, their models to make a prediction. So that is an example of uh, training on a different data, and then something happens, and then the model actually suffered because it hasn't seen this situation before. I see. I think uh, uh, definitely in terms of uh, machine learning, that's uh, whatever AI model that we have this uh, this past two years from the yeah. uh, COVID time until now, definitely it's actually impacted all the models because the human behavior changed, everything changed. Yes, <laughs> exactly. Just like the, just like the, uh, uh, during COVID, uh, during pandemic, there a lot of people actually stay at home quarantine and then they actually buy more things online. And then you yep. can see there's a search of uh, uh, food delivery and then there's a search of all these uh, services like Grab or Foodpanda or yeah. this uh, Shopee, Shopee food. But then after when they recover, then you can see there's a drop. So yeah. I think this, this, this kind of changes is, is so, so, so this kind of changes will actually affect all the prediction model that we have. We need to actually train pre-COVID, COVID and also post-COVID. So to, to, to actually understand in the future, if there's any more pandemic, whatever, how can our model uh, able to anticipate this and able to, you know, to perform better in the prediction? Well, I think it's hard to predict the next the next pandemic. Uh, the I, the best thing that we can do is to constantly monitor, like the what we're talking about just now. Constantly trying to monitor what are there any discrepancy between the distribution in our training set and the testing set. So the moment something is different there, it should alert something in the ecosystem that okay, there is a difference over here. Something needs to be done. Maybe there is like a, a an alert system saying that okay. The, the the accuracy of this model is probably going to to suffer right now because the distribution is so different right now and maybe at that point a human being could maybe assist the model of making a a, a 
a decision instead of relying 100% on, on the model. I see. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so, yeah. So in, in terms of this ML observation, so like you said, there are many tools out there. So, um, and then now a lot of people also moving towards cloud. Most of most of the operation now or most of the training now are actually done in the cloud. So yep. do you see, um, as a machine learning engineer, do you see there is a skill skill set that, uh, you know, how, how does a machine learning engineer now, if I want to be a machine learning engineer now, what should I learn? Should I learn open source or should I learn more on the software, uh, on the running all the uh, model training in the cloud? Uh, well, um, it's, I, I'm not sure what exact advice that I can give to everyone because the um, trends change now and then. And um, for me, if you ask me, uh, the job scope of machine learning engineer itself, it varies a lot from one organization to another organization. In one organization, the job scope might be focusing a lot on the development side of things. And maybe in another organization, the job scope may be more to the infrastructure side of things and deployment side. So I think it really depends on um, which, which, which side are you uh, going to. For me personally, I come from a research background. So I my, my strength is actually in the development side of things. So if you ask me to play around with PyTorch, with TensorFlow, I'll be happy to do that. But uh, if you ask me to uh, deploy certain things on AWS or uh, Azure, I, I might not be very good. But definitely this is a skill set that's worth learning. So if you're someone from from um, development side, it's probably worth taking a look at the other side of things, which is the infrastructure side of things. And if you're very familiar with the infrastructure side of things, then maybe uh, it's a good way to maybe balance out with the development side. Of That's what I think. True, because I think a lot of companies, when they even they, even when they want to hire machine engineers, they do not know what kind of skill set they yeah. they actually uh require from from the that job specification because machine learning engineer is something still very new in it, and then they 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 might thought that the machine learning engineer is similar to what a data scientist would do, and then it, it actually what what we said that it actually encompasses everything. From yes. the from the training the model to deployment model to monitoring is actually even 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 uh, encompass a job like a data engineer. Yeah, in some cases I've heard that machine learning engineer does all the collection of the data, cleaning the data, and doing all the data side instead of uh, modeling and <laughs> deploying. Okay, so I think like like for your job as a developer advocate, so you actually will actually work mostly people who are doing research. Or people on the, in the commercial side. Yeah, for me, this is one big difference. Uh, I see. Uh, for me, uh, my current job deals with a lot of people from the industry, which is heavily on the deployment side of things, and they don't talk about TensorFlow or PyTorch at this uh, at this point. But they talk a lot about uh, GCP, a lot about AWS, a lot about Azure, a lot a lot about uh, Kubernetes, a lot about the infrastructure side of things. So that is something new to me, and I'm I'm really astonished why in 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 the research world, oh wow, uh, I wasn't really exposed to this this at all, and definitely this is also a learning uh, a learning curve for me, and yeah, I'm really happy to see uh, the other side of the coin after being in academics for such a long time. Yeah, I find interest interesting that you mentioned Kubernetes. Do you see that the as a machine learning engineer, the knowledge of uh, you know, running uh, things on the container, Docker, doc, Docker, and also managing it like, using Kubernetes is something that uh, or, or uh, something that a machine learning engineer in, in current situation, uh, even moving forward in the future, that's something that they, they need to know because that's something definitely very popular now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a very good question. Um... Uh, personally, if you ask me, um, that managing like a Kubernetes and doing all this uh, Docker stuff, I think it's something um, that is outside of what a machine learning engineer should know best about. Maybe they, it's very good if they can know about how it operates at a higher level. But if you talk about managing managing it on a very on a very small uh, micro scale, I think this lies outside of the scope of a machine learning engine because this thing itself will take a lot of time already. And 
if a machine learning engineer is supposed to manage this and then who is going to do the machine learning part? So at ZenML, this is also what we believe. We, we, we believe that either a scientist or a machine learning engineer like, shouldn't know a lot about Kubernetes, shouldn't know a lot about the infrastructure side of things because they will, in order to know that, you have to spend a considerable amount of time uh, there. And what ZenML is trying to do is, be, is, is to extract away all this um, infrastructure things and put it and hide it um, in a way so that uh, things uh, can just work uh, without much uh, without much of a uh, you know tingling without much of a micromanaging all these kind of things and it, it can definitely save a lot of time as a machine learning engineer yep yeah I, I truly agree with you because uh even myself uh, trying to understand and then I'm trying to even manage all these communities thing is will take a lot of time definitely if I were doing that itself that then I would definitely have no other time to do other things already. Because right. especially when you're managing multiple projects at one time, that's definitely different. It takes a lot of your, of your, of your time already. True. Okay. Uh, there's something that uh, also because of this hype of uh, interest in this uh, ML ops, there's something what we call continuous ML and CML. Mm. So do you think CML is something that uh, uh, similar to what Zen, Zen ML is offering or is, is something that is going to complement each other? Because I I've, I see a lot of uh, even cloud services like AWS or whatever, they're also moving towards this direction. Yep. So Zenimal is a platform that aims to help you do continuous machine learning. So there are like there are a lot of tools that I think you can hook up together in order for the entire uh, workflow to be continuous. For example, you can start from uh, data training. Uh, collection, training, and then evaluation, and then you go to monitoring, and then, then you go back, right? So that's the continuous cycle of it. So ZenML is here to aid in that process and make it as easy as possible for you to use uh, any kind of tools uh, and integrate it into the framework. And so with ZenML, you don't have to worry about, let's say you being vendor locked in by certain tools. So if you're not happy with certain tools, for example, to track experiment, if you're not happy with tool A, then you can just happily switch with tool B and you can leave the rest of um, the components in, in place. So that is what um, uh, ZenML aims to do in, in continuous machine learning. Cool. Yeah. So like now, Recently, there's a lot of uh, interest in uh, all these transformer and then uh, GPT three, and then now even into diffusion model. We have DALL-E, we have uh, all these uh, image gen, whatever. So, is I just want to I just curious since you're working in this in this field, what are the current progress of AI or ML technologies that you are quite excited about, and then what things that you think that this is going to be the future? <laughs> wow, I think it's really really hard to tell right now uh, i mean before this like before all of this imagen before all this generative model came out like uh, i think the entire um uh, artificial intelligence or machine learning industry we agree on one thing that the first job that will be taken by machine learning is uh, autonomous cars and but right now i think things are changing uh, people are still driving cars and the creative industry is right now being over being taken on first by all these models. And we used to think that, oh, if your job requires certain form of creativity and then maybe that's the last thing to go, right? But uh, who knows now, uh, it's 2022 and all of a sudden, all of these creative jobs, like, uh, you know, producing art kind of uh, job, like they are, I think uh, a lot of them are quite worried now about the, uh, about the future because of emergence of all this kind of model. And I think for me, I think it's really hard to say uh, what's what's coming next. And the one thing for sure is that rapid progress is being made every day. And just seeing this paper coming out week after week is, I, I just couldn't keep up myself, honestly. Yeah. I, I think I, I do truly agree with you. At one time, people said that uh, no matter how smart is your AI, they cannot beat the human creativity in it. Yeah. <laughs> and now suddenly that uh, uh, the 
the AI can actually paint or uh, similar to certain artists. And now that even now there's a uh, re recent research paper published by Google or even Meta, Facebook, they even have uh, just from text, they can create video. And then that is crazy. <laughs> so I, I'm not sure where, where is this going to hit? I think in the future, if I want to be a director of a movie, I just know, uh, use all these tools to generate some sort of storyboard that I can actually make a movie from there. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's something that is uh, quite quite interesting to find out, and also quite worrying because uh, where is going to be our human creativity? <laughs> True, and the one thing funny is that right now there is something that uh people are right now studying the prompt, like what kind of text will generate what kind of output, and there 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 is like a I think like a website or something that you, that that collects all these kind of prompts. Let's say you want to generate like a. Picasso style, so you should use this keyword and this exact uh, uh, style and this painting, this description, and you will get uh, uh, this kind of uh, output. And there's a lot going on there. It's super interesting to see. Okay. Uh, yeah, yeah as, I, as I mentioned at the beginning of the show, and so you also have, you actually was a guest or a speaker for my TensorFlow Malaysia user group. So you actually talk a lot about you know your your own personal research. Last time you're doing a lot of on this uh, uh image uh, object detection, uh, mm -hmm. video based. So are you still onto all this? Uh, since you're working, in, I, I know because last time you are a researcher, you have a lot of time to do research. Yeah. But then I just curious now. Now you're already working in the industry. Do you still have time to do your own of? Uh, pet project or hobby <laughs> man <laughs> to be honest no <laughs> there is uh yeah so in the industry things are moving at a very very quick pace so keeping up is one thing and then uh i think um and maybe it's also because i am new in this in this uh industry environment and there's a lot of things for me to learn, to keep up. And there's definitely uh, a kind of a learning curve there. So at the moment, I can hardly find time to do my pet project uh, anymore. But um, my real interest is still there, if you, if you, if you ask me. Uh, my real interest is still in uh, computer vision, object detection, and edge machine learning. That's what I've always been uh, reading about. I, I've, I've always... Uh, try to keep up with uh, what's going on in in that area yeah i think there's yeah. uh, it's actually very important to actually keep but uh, to do what you are actually passionate about and i think yeah uh, uh, if you if you have, if you have uh, read about the books uh, or the term called ikigai it's very important to actually do something <laughs> that you are passionate about to yeah, keep yeah. the fire burning and then uh, not to be burned out by doing working in in, in the industry you know if not, then you 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 like we said you need to find a work life balance. Yeah, that's true. And yeah, thank you for mentioning that. I think burnout is like it's a real issue, right? Uh, that I think many people are facing, and maybe not many people are willing to talk about it. And I thought academic uh, was stressful, and people talk about burnout in academics, but uh, seeing the industry right now, I think it's very common in 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 the in the industry. Yeah, I know. I've been there. I know that uh, being an academician is uh, it's like living in a comfort zone. You never know <laughs> you are living in a paradise until you left the paradise. Yeah. <laughs> True story. <laughs> True story. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so let let let's uh let's jump into you know being like coming back to being a machine learning engineer. So I think uh. Uh, you, because now you are a developer advocate, you probably work with a lot of machine learning out, engineers out there and then talk to them. What do you think is the single trait of uh, to be a good machine learning engineer? Or what do you see that uh, in the industry now, or how do people, uh, when they work in this uh, field as a machine learning engineer, what are the traits that you think that they should process? Well, for me, one thing that I see is that uh, in many companies, machine learning engineers or the company that that has this machine learning department, they are very compartmentalized. Right? So they have one team to work on the data. They have another team to work on the model. They have another team to work on the deployment. And the thing, the thing, the thing about this is that it's good because then you can specialize about things. Um, you can really focus on the data quality and then one team can really focus on improving the model and the other team can focus about the, the deployment. But 
uh, on the downside, this also means that there is no one person that has a broad overview of what what's happening along the pipeline. And usually this is where uh, problems happen. So because the data team might think that, oh, the certain kinds of data with certain kinds of distribution might be favorable. But um, when they pass that data to the training team, then they might think, oh, okay, this kind of data is not actually very useful. Uh, they're going to repeat the same kind of job again, or even worse, they're just going to go back to the data team and ask them to make changes. And then there's a lot of, you know, uh, balls, you know, being passed here and there, here and there. And that results in a very, uh, a lot of slowdowns in model uh, uh, development uh, overall. So I think uh, if, if uh, anyone is doing a machine learning engineering, I think it, it's a good, um, it's a good thing to have uh, a bird's eye view of the entire pipeline, the entire process. So if you're collecting data, it's very good to know that how this data is going to be used in the model training and how this data is going to be come into play when the model is being deployed. Uh, is it the same thing? Uh, is this the same distribution as a as the, the real world data? Of course, it's, it's good to know that. But uh, imagine if they're just working in a silo and they don't care about real world data, all they care is about cleaning the data, removing all these invalid points, and then making the data uh, you know as clean as possible. But at the end of the day, if it doesn't work in the real world, then it kind of defeats the purpose. So a, a bird's eye view of uh, of the entire process is uh, is one important thing to have with you. Yeah, I think it, 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 this uh, actually is applicable to any industry, and not just being a machine learning yeah. engineer. Just if you are work, if you are going to work something that's very specialized, and then you you don't see the bigger picture, then you do not understand that what's the impact of what you're doing. And then you also will not appreciate that the things that you are doing or, or even your other colleagues are, are, are what they are doing and how this actually can be you know, uh, incorporated together as one single uh, product. I think that's exactly. something, that, uh, something that's very important to know. So, so I, I also like to point out that uh, in, in the data in, uh, analytics world, it's also good that uh, when you, because you work in different domain, it's also good to know, uh, focus on the, uh, even though you're focusing on single, uh, a very particular domain, but understanding the domain is also very important because uh, no matter what, you need to be have a, like a, what we call the subject matter expert. Isn't it? So the subject True. matter expert will actually can guide whether, like you say, the data distribution, the data, whether it's relevant or not. These are, I think, having a good understanding of like a, or a bigger picture, then you will appreciate how that everything can be actually can be incorporated together into one single solution or product. That's also very important. Yep, very good point. How about, uh, do you see that uh, there is, uh, because the word ML engineer, machine learning engineer, mm. do you see that uh, people will confuse it as a, um, because when you talk about ML engineer and compared to a normal engineer or even compared to a data engineer, there's a different job specification. So how how do you think that, uh, uh, because currently a lot of people say, oh, I, I, I want to be a data scientist, data scientist, but actually a lot of time now, most of companies are looking for ML engineers. So what, what do you think is the different be difference between a data scientist and ML engineer? <laughs> well, I'm not sure if I'm like in a good position to answer that. But uh, yeah, as you said, um, a lot of companies, when they say they want to hire data scientists, they want to hire um, ML engineer, the job scope isn't 100% clear. And you might be hired as a data scientist, uh, or you might be hired as a machine learning engineer, and you end up doing data collection, data cleaning, and somebody might end up uh, being hired as a data scientist, but ended up doing a lot of infrastructure work. Yeah. Um, the yeah, I, I think the lines are getting blurrier and blurrier uh, these days. Uh, yeah, I think uh, in, in a very rude uh, colloquial term, we say one leg kick. So even though you employ <laughs> as a uh, as a data scientist, but basically you are doing the job as a data engineer, also as an ML engineer, because you need to, once you even train the model as a data scientist, you need to go through the whole process until deployment. That's where your, your job as an ML engineer will kick in also. But like, like then also, like we said, the deployment is not end of the story. You need to keep <laughs> on monitoring your model and then make sure there's, uh, there's if there's any model decay, you need to go to do the process of retraining again and then re, re, redeploy again the model. Yeah, I True. That, 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 that's a, that's, that is the, the, the reality that uh, sometimes people confuse between data scientists and ML engineers. Right. Okay, uh, I think, uh, so another thing that probably I, I'm very curious to know that uh, 
what are the tips for people who are who are <laughs> who are working in the, in the academics now is they want to jump into the industry is it a why for them or how to survive in the real world actually compared to being an academician no, no, I think you can give better advice than me on this one, right? Yeah, I'm still surviving though. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that, 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 is, uh, that just means that yeah, I mean, whatever you say has some kind of a power because you are surviving right now. But if you ask me, um, what advice? Huh? Well, um, uh, my advice is to uh, be prepared to step out of uh, the comfort zones of uh, academics. And uh, there are many things in academics that we care a lot about, but uh, it's not necessarily so in the industry. And yeah, especially in machine learning, in, uh, in academics, we care a lot about the numbers, the metrics, the accuracy, the score. But uh, in, in the industry, uh, what's more important than that is whether or not this thing works in the real world. So that was one big shift of a mindset that uh, I that, that came to me when I, I took the jump. And I think it's the time, isn't it? because in the research world, you are like you're given kind of like infinite time to do research. Yeah. When in the real world, you have given a very short time. Usually, so we talk about quarter, then within yeah. three or four months, you need to you know, show some result. Then whether it's whether something that is going to be you know, uh, feasible or not feasible, or whether we need to shift our focus or not. So I think yeah. the time time management part is very important. Understanding that we that the time is very uh, the time is limited, and also understanding how does this bring ROI to us. So ROI is also very important in terms of. Uh, Academics, we, we just think about when to publish a paper and then how to get the best paper <laughs> award. <laughs> oh my God, that's so nostalgic. <laughs> when well, in the real world, people we, we talk about how much, uh, how does this model help the business and how much of ROI can bring back as soon as possible. Because every single cent spent, then you need to talk, think about when we can get back all this investment. Right, right. right. Yeah. So do you think that uh, with, with all this, uh, because... Uh, Eventually, when you talk about ML ops, it's actually eventually is we want to use all the model that we are trained and deploy it and then use it in the real world and then able to generate, uh, the, like we said, the ROI for the company. So do you think that now that uh, in the future or coming future that uh, all these, like, because we said that there are too many tools out there, uh, do you foresee that in the coming future, all these tools will be consolidated and then eventually you know, people will, will have a, a very unified kind of a framework or, or, or standard that uh, people will follow for MLOps and then you become more mature. Yeah, I think definitely uh, some, I think uh, I'm already beginning to see this like right now. For example, like in Azure, they already have like an entire ecosystem where you can use all of the Azure related tools and they provide like a platform that is like, a, they call it all-in-one kind of platform. So that reduces the hassle uh, for anyone to jump in. All you have to do is to sign up for an account over here, subscription, and then you get all and everything that you need in one place, in one platform, and that's that's easy. That is definitely happen, happening right now. And But the downside of things is that, let's say if you don't like one thing off in, inside of that all-in-one platform, then uh, maybe it's it's going to be harder to to make the switch. And if you want to switch just one component, then uh, how would that look like? I think some some vendors will not be very happy about that, and because they want to keep you inside the ecosystem so that you can you can use all of the products together, right? So I think yeah, definitely some some platforms or even more and more pla uh, companies are are moving into this direction. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> Most of the vendor provider they want you to lock 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 you in, and once you lock, lock then you cannot actually. Okay. It's not it's so it's not so easy for you to switch. Yeah. But uh, like like what uh, your your company is doing is you try to give a lot of choice, and then you can actually choose whichever vendor because you you actually facilitate them to talk, to talk to each other better. Isn't it? Right. Exactly. Okay, I think uh, we are coming to the uh, the last uh, uh, um, the, the hours of the time. So do you have any tips or advice you know, uh, out there for people who maybe want to be a, a AI or ML engineer? Any, any advice? 
um advice okay let's see um so if you're new um like you don't know a lot about machine learning but you want to jump in um i think right now is a very good time to do so because i remember back then when i was trying to learn machine learning uh it was early days of tensorflow there wasn't any resources and it was tensorflow 1.0 it's so hard to use and <laughs> things have gotten so much better and nowadays there's like a ton of resources and I think the only limitation is for you to just sit down and just do the drills and 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 work through uh, the, the codes. So definitely now is a good time to, to jump in. And the one pitfall that I wish I knew earlier was to start writing about your project. So I was stuck in doing tutorials for a very, very long time. So they call it tutorial hell. So I was stuck in tutorial hell for a very long time. I go from one tutorial to another tutorial to another tutorial and repeating again and again. And I just find myself not progressing very much. I Yes, I finished the tutorial, but did I learn anything? Well, um, a little bit here and there, but I just couldn't connect it very well. But that changed until I started to blog and to write on my website. So writing does something very magical, uh, I think, to many people, I think definitely for me. So the one thing that makes it different is that when I write, things start to connect. So if you have any, if you're learning about machine learning, if you're trying to learn anything new for that matter, um, I would really encourage you to write about it, uh, post it on a blog somewhere. Don't be, don't be concerned if any anyone is going to read or anything. Um, the writing is going to do more good for you than for anyone. That is uh, one lesson I wish. I knew earlier. So learn in public, put it out there. If someone finds it helpful, that's a bonus. Otherwise, like you're the one who's gaining the most from the writing. Cool. I think it's very good advice. I think that people nowadays are lack, lacking of reading and also writing. I think I'll, oh. I, I, will, I will actually get challenge my listener out there. When was the last time you actually called a pen? <laughs> or when was the last time you actually written a paragraph, not for work, written a paragraph on your own? I think that's a... That's a one thing that people are lacking now, putting their thoughts into words and then you know, form, and then forming a good sentence. I think that's something that's lacking now. Right. Okay, so thanks for the time. Thanks for the all the advices that's given. I think uh, it has been uh, very interesting to find that uh, you actually left in that uh, in the academics and joined the in, uh, industry, and then you are enjoying your life. Even though it's even though it's very challenging, but I I I I do think that uh, there is a the fun part and the challenging part that you should be enjoying now because uh, it's something that uh, you will not find in economics. <laughs> True. Okay, I uh, wish you all the best. So hopefully, maybe you know, in the coming near future, I can invite you back again as a guest. Uh, maybe you will have changed your career and then maybe you have achieved <laughs> something other, other things. Uh, or, or maybe you have started your hobby again. Wow. Uh, <laughs> yep. Just let me know. I'm, I'll be happy to be back. Okay. Thanks. Bye-bye. All right. Bye. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and you would like to help support the podcast, please share it with others, post about it on social media, or leave a rating and review. Follow this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify Podcasts. If you have any comments or recommendations, I'll be glad to receive your voice messages. Send me your voice messages via the link in the show notes. To catch all latest episodes, you can follow this show on our website, www.aimldatatalks.com or our social media such as Instagram or Twitter with the handler at AIMLDataTalks. Thanks again. I will see you next time.